Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. At some point, you know, you've probably been sitting in a meeting and it feels like time is moving oh, so slowly. And then maybe you're somewhere else, you're having fun with friends, and all of a sudden it feels like time is flying by. That is not just you, and it's not just your imagination either. Our perception of time can be distorted depending on our emotions. And now there's more research that suggests it's not just our emotions either that influence that. It's really also about our heartbeat. Yes, our heartbeat. Dr. Irene Arsalanova is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Psychology at the University of London and can tell us all about that. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for inviting me. And yeah, thank you so much for giving a really nice overview of all oh. the emotional distortions that we have <laughs> in our time experience. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I take that as a big compliment. If I can sum up research well, that's always a challenge. So tell me, what is it about our heartbeat that kind of helps us figure out what our emotions are? Yes. Yeah, so this is a very, so I think like before I just even go into the heart thing, I just want to just um, highlight like why, you know, why are we even looking at these things like the heart rate and how it influences time? Like, why is it even important to look at these kind of factors? Like, you know, whether our heart is contracting and relaxing. So one fascinating thing about time perception, like how we experience um, the duration of events or like how much time is passing, is that there is no sense organ for time. And this might not mean much to you if I just say it, but for example, imagine how you get your visual experiences. We have eyes and they detect light. And then we have specialized brain areas, uh, what we call visual cortices, and these kind of create visual images from that light through an eyes. For time, there's no such thing. So we still don't quite understand, like how how is it that, what does the brain really do during these experiences that we have that it gains this experience of temporal uh, passage? And so what one, for example, one thing that might be happening is what the brain is doing is that it is detecting an overall change in neural activity. So you can imagine neural activity going slower, going faster, and that may actually influence whether my passage of time is going faster and going slower. And then of course, there's a lot of factors like our emotions that will then make the neural activity go slower and faster. So, but we don't know that. And this is exactly why researchers are trying to figure out, well, what are the co- factors that cause time to distort? And then look at what is happening in the brain during those distortions. And hopefully that will kind of get us closer to answering this question of like, well, how does the brain create our experience of time? And if we get that answer, then maybe, you know, if I'm currently like having a bit of an anxiety, my time is going so fast that I'm even like struggling to get my words to mean more sensible things. 
how could I then make my time a bit slower so I can actually be more efficient in what I do in everyday life? I guess and what, what, so it's not our yeah, imagination then. It's like it's not our imagination. Things are speeding up and slowing down. That that, that is happening in our brains. Yes, yes, definitely. I think this is so there's a lot of things about like, you know, time is obviously connected to our memory and strength of the memory, but it is it is so there's something happening in our brain that then causes us to experience time as slower or faster and a bit like not really linear and kind of jumping from one thing to another. Okay, how do you even measure something like this? How do you figure this out? Yes, basically what we do in our lab is we um, show participants. So the, the way it's called a temporal bisection task, but the basic idea is that we teach participants to um, uh, to kind of learn a very short duration. So that could be like, we, we work with very, very short millisecond durations because we care about these very, very short uh, heart fluctuations. So for example, we teach participants so this is 300 milliseconds. This is uh, 600 milliseconds. They learn these durations and then we present them with intermediate durations. So like 400, 500. And we ask them to categorize them, whether they're more like the short one or long one. And in our study, the main point was that we were presenting these durations either during the point where the heart was contracting or at the point where the heart is relaxing and we showed that identical durations were perceived to be longer when heart was relaxing and perceived to be shorter when heart was um, contracting and that really like tell us something how like our passage of time arises from this interaction between the heart and the brain so these very low level monetary fluctuations that occur within our bodies already distorts. So the state of our body at any moment distorts how time is registered and extracted. So And that then, is like the fascinating bit. <laughs> it's so fascinating. My question is, can we convince ourselves otherwise? For instance, if we are in this torturous meeting that is taking a really long time or we feel like time is going slow, is there something we can say or, you know, put the idea, thought we can put in our brain that helps us perceive the passage of time going mm -hmm. more quickly? Yes, I think for this, you know, obviously here we're like looking at the role of the heart um, because, you know, it tells us a bit more how the brain even creates this time experience. But one factor that influences how time is experienced is attention. Uh, and the easiest way for you to make time move quicker is to try not to attend to time, right? So like uh, to distract yourself, to do some other tasks. Hmm. I think for me, for example, the interesting bit, and I, I really, for me, what is fascinating for me personally is this case of anxiety. So case of like fear of public speaking, you know, if, you, if you're like speaking in the public, one reason why like things kind of thoughts become scrambled in your head and you kind of cannot find the right word is because your experience of time is kind of speeding up. It, it doesn't really flow in a way it would be if you're like in a relaxed state. And there, I do think that, you know, modulating your state of your body could be really helpful. So like actually trying to breathe more slowly, try to lower your heart rate. And this is exactly what, you know, meditative practices do. 
So expert meditators, they kind of engage in the slow breathing and they do report that their experience of time is also changing in result to that. Wow. This is so interesting. Thank you so much for being with us today. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for inviting me <laughs> again. <laughs> That's Dr. Irina Arslanova, who's a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Psychology at the University of London. For sure, you've had that happen to you, right? Time is faster. Time is slower. Turns out we can tell our brain to help us out in that. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's find out what's been on the mind of our contributor, Scott Chance lately. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And I'm very quickly just going to ask you, how was your burger test yesterday? Oh, it was fantastic, A, because I got to eat two burgers. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it was just, it was wonderful. I, I used the barbecue out in my backyard on a sunny afternoon, and it was wonderful. That makes Scott very happy. So for people who weren't with us yesterday, we were talking about David Chang, the chef's controversial comments about how to cook a burger. And he said, essentially, don't ever. He said, it's terrible, terrible to put a burger on a grill. He said, what you need is a, like a flat top cast iron pan, something like that. You did both yesterday. Yeah, I used a griddle. I put a griddle on the barbecue. Great idea. And put one burger on the griddle and one right on the grill and cooked them both. And then, uh, uh, tried them, taste tested them. My wife taste tested them as well. And Simi, I pride myself on being a person who is willing to admit that when they were wrong. And uh, this is one of those occasions. The griddle burger did actually make a better burger experience. First of all, I'm impressed. Second, you're still going to go and put them on the barbecue though, right? Because you like them on them. You like the the look and everything on them. Well, it's interesting. Because I almost couldn't tell when it was all done. Like the grill lines and stuff are there, but you only see them for a second. And I do think like the the putting the griddle on the barbecue is the perfect solution Absolutely. because then you still get to be outdoors, the cooking outdoors thing and stuff. And it really like the big standout to me was the texture. I was surprised so at juicy. how how much better the texture was on the griddle burger. Well, I admire that about you. Great. I'm sure we'll be talking more about this because now I gave him a gift of two burger patties from the butcher shop that I go to. So we'll Very see how generous. that goes. But I also want to talk about diamonds today. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. And I actually, th- I, I can relate to this uh, phenomenon a lot, as I think a lot of guys can. Uh, they're, they're basically diamond manufacturers are having a concern that people are leaning away from buying diamonds as engagement rings. This is a thing that's sort of happening out there right now. Sales of diamonds around the world for engagement ring purposes are down and they're wondering why that is. And one of the reasons that they're pointing to is that less people are getting engaged and the people that are getting engaged are realizing that in some cases buying a diamond ring is stupid. (laughs) I love the way you put it so bluntly. It just might not be high on the priority list of this particular generation. They're like, why? Well, there's an argument to be made that uh, we're all going broke uh, in the face of modern Very capitalism. good argument to be made on that. And spending, you know, two months salary, three months salary, whatever it is these days, whatever the assumed amount that you should be spending these days, 
uh, that money could be better spent elsewhere, like on saving up for a down payment or uh, paying off some student debt or, you know, establishing yourself as a couple and not going into a marriage with, you know, a big chunk of debt just so you could have a fancy ring on your hand. So are jewelers worried about this? Jewelers are very worried about this. Yeah, wow, absolutely. So it's noticeable sales decline. There is a noticeable sales decline. There's a part of them that's kind of like, oh, well, we think that less people were getting engaged because of the pandemic. This is less people dated during the pandemic. This is because of that. And, you know, they hope that it's going to rebound. But they're also like, well, you know, some people are speculating that it's like, no, no, people have have sort of become aware. And there is uh, more acceptance now for the idea of. I'll get you a ring, but we don't need to put a huge diamond in it. Or maybe we'll put a birthstone in it. Or maybe we'll, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, my wife and I have tattoos for rings. Like I, I don't, did not notice. I don't even wear a wedding ring. Wow. Um, she does have an engagement ring that I like made for her. When That's why I say I can relate to this. I went through this whole thing when my wife and I got married because I was starving student, didn't have any money. And I was like, I, is this stupid? Like this felt so silly to me. So I like bought a, a stone and bought a wedding band and, you know, had a jeweler put it but all that's together. that's so thoughtful that you went to the trouble to do that. And I think maybe that's also part of the process. I know a young couple who got engaged and they designed each other's ring. Like they helped yeah. together. They did it as a project. They each have an engagement ring, right? And they, they, did the design and that's how they yeah. like it. That's like their forever rings. Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of this, this thing out there that people want to, uh, I think now more than ever, um, not define themselves by the way that sort of industry standard kind of does. And there's something really cool about saying, I didn't just go into a store and pick this and buy it. I put some thought and some effort into it exactly. and I didn't need to spend, you know, uh, three months salary or four months that's salary. So dumb. And really honestly, the, the industry did it to themselves with all those like really high bar and making it, you know, seem like this unattainable, oh, you must spend this amount of money. That's, I think, what did it. Don't don't tell people they have to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there there it is. We'll see what happens. You know, I don't think the diamond industry is going to go away overnight. No. But there's a decline. Interesting. And I wonder, do you wear an engagement ring or not? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, as always, tons for us to talk about. Uh, let's talk about, and I love the way you phrase this today, it's the irony watch. A lot of irony in what Premier David Eby has had to say yesterday. Yeah, we had a news conference with the Premier yesterday and a lot of questions about, uh, maybe not the issues he would have chosen, but good questions nevertheless. So, um what about this promise that the Premier made, indicated, back in the spring, that, yeah, he recognized there was a problem with open drug use in parks and playgrounds and other public spaces in the wake of the government's decriminalization of the drug supply? I recognize it was a problem. He'd heard from some mayors and councillors about it. And by George, the provincial government was going to deal with that because the premier recognized it was a problem. So premier got asked yesterday, what about it? And of course, the question, Simi, was prompted by the uh, mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West, and his council going, I, I, they're tired of waiting for Victoria and the provincial government to do something. So the council out there has voted to bring in a bylaw that says you can't take drugs in public spaces in Port Coquitlam. Not the first municipality to do it, but um, 
West is a new Democrat, I think. Uh, you'd have to say that based on his political history. And through, a couple of other members of his council are new Democrats. And they're not happy with the provincial government on this issue. You know, there's so much irony because yeah. in yeah. this, because this week we've also been talking about, you know, the provincial NDP government not liking the stance of the federal NDP yeah. party and wanting the federal government to do something and not getting it. This is like almost the same situation. It's uh, the same storyline uh, when you boil it down. So... Uh, provincial government wanted bail reform. Uh, David Eby led the call for bail reform. He got a commitment from Ottawa to bring in a piece of legislation. They did bring in a piece of legislation for bail reform that would make it tougher for repeat violent offenders to get bail. They brought in the bill in May, and then they just let it sit there. They adjourned uh, the federal government, parliament, two days early, didn't touch the bill. And yeah, David Eby came out and said, come on, like, you guys promised this. Where is it? I'm disappointed. Um, okay, fine. Uh, what about David Eby's promise to do something about open drug use? Yeah. Premier got asked about this yesterday. And he said, well, you know, I, I've noticed what uh, Mayor West is, is doing out there in Port Coquitlam, and uh, other mayors are doing it too. And, hey, you know, the provincial government is talking to the Union of BC Municipalities about whether or not there's a solution for this province-wide, whether or not we can do something in the fall legislative session, which, of course, is when Ottawa, the fall, is planning to deal with bail reform. But, you know, the Premier said this is complicated. Right. This is a complicated issue. Isn't that what, what the federal government said? <laughs> I mean, look, I'm just repeating what they say, Simi, right? The nice thing about this job is you rarely have to make anything up. Uh, you have to That's be so super true. desperate because what they actually say is... Oh, and, of course, Ottawa says that, too, but it's complicated, right? I mean, I, I would suggest as a general rule of thumb that any time a prob- pro- politician says it's complicated... The translation is, you know, we don't actually want to deal with this, right, because it's a tough decision and it's going to anger some people. So we're just going to say we're studying it. It's complicated. (laughs) Again, so much irony in all of that. It's fascinating. Okay, so that's going to be coming. But let's also talk about the other issue here. We have to. Long weekend upon us. So, of course, something goes wrong with BC Ferries. you got to love BC Ferries. And I heard you describe them as a gift that keeps on giving. And, 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 you know, if if you're out there listening and you're thinking of taking the ferries this weekend or you're dreading the thought of the lineups or anything, I give you the advice from BC Ferry Corporation that came out yesterday. So there are cancellations. There are staff shortages. There are ships out of service and they admit it's going to be another tough, long weekend. But the Ferry Corporation has some advice for you. Walk on. Just walk on. Oh, sure, because you don't need your your car on the other side. And your belongings and any members of your family with mobility issues behind and just walk on, problem solved. And I I heard that and I thought, "Has has anybody in the Ferry Corporation ever actually gone on a family vacation? Like, I just went on one with my daughter and her husband and our grandson, and we needed two vehicles to to haul everything off, you know? I thought, like, you're thinking of going on the ferries and you don't have a reservation, and the ferry corporation is saying, walk on. Like, you know, it's going to look like a trail of refugees fleeing some country in the middle of a civil war if 
the people that actually need to use the ferries for family travel and visiting in-laws and relatives and stuff are having to walk on and drag all their stuff behind them. Exactly. And so I don't understand how this keeps happening, Vaughn. What is going on? Well, Premier got asked about it. You know, and so a year ago, just to recap, John Horgan fired the CEO of BC Ferry Corporation. Mark Collins, they paid him more than a million dollars in severance, and Horgan said this was absolutely necessary to turn things around at the Ferry Corporation. And he said, you know, if you talk to somebody in a ferry lineup, they would say, what took you so long, right? Like, Collins had angered the union, angered the premier's office, so they fired him. Okay, a year later... Uh, we still got lineups, service problems, and excuses coming from the ferry corporation. So Eby got asked, uh, what about it yesterday? He said, it's not acceptable. That's, that's another thing you hear from politicians today. It's not acceptable. Like, okay, but what does that mean? It, it might be not acceptable to you, or to, if I'm in a ferry lineup, to, to the listener, right? But he's the premier, right? What does the premier do? When it's not acceptable to him. Well, we saw last year, John Horgan fired the CEO. Okay, we still have the problem. So what does the premier do about it? Well, David Eby yesterday, he says, I understand the challenges at the Ferry Corporation. Okay, your team has been in place for a year, right? The former NDP Uh, cabinet minister, Joy McPhail, is running the show over there. She's chair of the board. She fired the CEO. She brought in her guy. Okay, so the premier says, I understand the challenges. And he says, the public is going to have to be patient. So there's your choices, patience or walk on. You're not going to get any answers or any relief this weekend on the ferries. Uh, So is that the old, it's going to get worse before it gets better situation? I don't know. You know, there are real problems out there, <laughs> yes, exactly. and they've been building for a long time, Simi, and, you know, okay, and it's complicated, right? Apparently. <laughs> but I, you know, be patient. Um, that's what you're asked if you're worried about public safety in downtown, and, well, Eby says that's the fault of the federal government not doing anything, and... If you're waiting for a family doctor, well, they're dealing with that, but it's complicated. Uh, Recruiting foreign doctors, yeah, well, it's complicated. Uh, Be patient. Um, Cost of living, patience, please. Uh, You go down the list, uh, this government has been given an awful lot of patience, in my view, by the public on a lot of these big problems, and they are dealing with things, not quickly in some cases, And you sort of wonder, um, how long are people going to be patient? And uh, maybe if you're traveling on the ferries, how long are you going to keep walking on? That's a real test for this weekend, though, isn't it, Vaughn? Because this is now the second kind of big long weekend this year where this has been a big problem. And you can only ask for patience so many times. I agree. And, and, you know, the premier actually said, like, I, I actually understand the challenge. He said, grandmother lives on the island, so David Eby and his wife have two children, right? And I don't think they're all going to walk on the ferry. They want a visitor, right? So he understands that, you know, if you're visiting on the island, uh, walking on uh, isn't 
a particularly useful piece of advice unless the in-laws happen to live in the ferry terminal on Vancouver Island. Like you might have to drive somewhere and you might need a minivan if you've got two children. So he does understand the problem, but he's also pleading for the public to be patient. And, you know, I think there is some evidence out there that the public is quite patient with some things. But you know, uh, let's wait and see if they're still patient uh, as the problem goes on and on. But here we are, another holiday weekend, trouble on the ferries. And they have a a relatively new CEO, and we've spoken to him recently as well, and he talks about this, but you got to wonder what's going on behind the scenes to get this thing back into shape. Yeah, and Joy McPhail and Jimenez did improve things at ICBC. So you can... You have to give them that and say, okay, you give them some time to turn it around. And even though, as I said, it's been a year since uh, McPhail fired the CEO, a million and a half dollars in severance. But okay, patience. All right, patience, public. Let's see how it goes. I, my guess is if uh, our colleagues with cameras and microphones descend on the ferry lineups this weekend, we may find that there's some people out there who aren't walking on and aren't patient, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. We will have to wait and see. I'm not taking the ferries this weekend. That's (laughs) my decision. (laughs) I have a feeling we're going to be talking more about this, especially with the long weekend upon us, but Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. But I guess if you're going to talk about alcohol, there's way more music to choose from in the country music genre than I think anywhere else. Scott, would you agree with oh, me on that? no question. <laughs> country music and uh, a cooler full of Bud Lights or Pabst Blue Ribbon, they go together hand in hand. I learn something new every day. Okay, so we are talking about liquor laws today. Scott, why is that? Well, you might have seen this story. It's been hovering around for the last week or so about a brewery in Chilliwack, Old Yale Brewing, that uh, is very common... Uh, uh, hot hot spot. If I'm from the Valley, I know people out there and stuff. And the brewery scene out there is really, really popping off. So these guys, they're like, they call themselves brew, craft brewery and kitchen. So it's not just a brewery. You can get their food there too. But they're in the news because they had this cool little area called Little Explorers where essentially kids could play. They had books and some things going on. It was like an area for kids. So you could go with your family and have some time, a beer, some food, and your kids had something to entertain them because anyone who has kids nice. knows that it's such a pain taking them out. And the Liquor Control Board has said, uh-uh, no way, you can't have this. It's got to go because it violates regulations, whatever the regulations are. You can't have a kid's area and you can't have this sign on the wall that says Little Explorers. They actually made them take the sign down. Now, a huge part of the controversy here revolves around the word predominantly. So they said you can't have this in an area or you can't have a liquor a liquor license for something that is predominantly serves kids and having that little explorer's sign makes it feel like this is predominantly a kids area, but it's a brewery, so I don't think anyone thinks that they're taking their kid to a daycare when they're taking them to Old Yale Brewery. So a lot a lot of like stuff to understand here. So I actually got in touch with Randy Brown. He's the owner of Brown Beverage Consultant he used to be in law enforcement. He worked for the Liquor Control Board. He was the first provincial manager for liquor manufacturing in Canada. He knows his stuff. They do licensing, consulting, uh, all of all of that type of stuff. And he gets into this story. I asked him about the Old Yale Brewing thing. But first I asked him, because this is something we've heard about in BC for a long time. 
are our liquor laws here like antiquated? People say they're antiquated, they're outdated. I asked him if he thinks our laws need to be updated. Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question. And if you travel around the world, you'll see a variety of laws that are sometimes more restrictive that we have here in British Columbia. Uh, and then you'll find other areas, uh, whether it's in the United States or different parts of Canada or Europe, that are less restrictive. It all balances public safety and public interest. So every jurisdiction is a little different, and it basically plays to what the public want to move forward with in terms of ease of restrictions. I think probably the watershed moment in British Columbia was actually during the pandemic. When we saw COVID come in, and businesses were suffering in British Columbia, both manufacturers and hospitality, is that we saw a lot of restrictions that were placed on restaurants and bars all of a sudden expand. Things went very well. So I think there are some restrictions based on governments in the past, and I think it's a good time right now for some of our our rules around uh, beverage service and beverage licensing that need to be looked at and examined and maybe uh, freed up a bit. I have noticed that it feels like some things have been freed up a little bit, like, but then you might've seen this story about a a local brewery that had like, um, sort of like a kid's area set up in it so that, you know, parents like myself could go there and have a beer and their kids could kind of like play. It seemed like a great idea, but I guess something to do with their liquor licensing, um, prevented that. But to someone like me, that seems like a great idea. So why would why would that not be allowed, something like that? Well, it's easy to say. I would say that when it comes to BC liquor laws, there's a lot of inconsistencies. So in other words, you can go to a winery or a brewery, and if they have a picnic area, you can have children, if, because it's a self-serve area, you would go get your sample or whatever and bring it out to the picnic area or bring your bottle out. And you would serve yourself from the counter, come out, and you can have your children out there. So in that particular area, not a big deal. You can have your children as long as you know, you're monitoring them. Because it says uh, minors can be in a particular place, like a picnic area, as long as they're accompanied by an adult. So I don't know what the licensing is on that particular brewery, but I mean, there are provisions for that. But some of the rules are inconsistent uh, in terms of how they're applied. Special event permits now, some of them that you would... Uh, you have events years ago where you never allowed young people. Now they have festivals now where you can have a certain liquor. Whole families can go in and walk around. So I think there's work to be done. But the change takes time. I mean, probably the biggest thing is that when people want change, either the public or, uh, you know, say the wine industry or brewery industry, you try to apply it to change the government. That change taking place takes a large amount of time, you know, sometimes years. And I think people get, get frustrated with that, that delay. Yeah, certainly. Do you do you think that if we look kind of maybe a year, two years, five years down the road, do you think that um, liquor licensing and sort of this process for um, even small businesses, because, yeah, like you mentioned the winery thing and, you know, there's so many like little breweries and patios and even smaller restaurants. Do you think that this is going to get easier for them or more difficult? I hope that things open up a bit. I hope that... Uh... Uh, that we're going to start not seeing more of a liberalization, but an easing of rules to a common sense approach. I think the pandemic showed us that there was. There are no doubt there's going to be those people that, uh, you know, bend the rules or push the limits. But the uh, the authorities have people in place to look after that. But most of my clients, uh, you know, 
99% of most people just want to get in the business, do their thing, uh, make the margins and move forward. But from a practical perspective, which most of the public and business people look at, they say, make it easier for us to do business, as well as be, make us responsible for ensuring the rules around uh, safety, minors, intoxication are adhered to. Yeah, I I, see. I think that it's so interesting. Like, I just wish I want the government to trust us, you know, like we can handle this, like we can handle the like the like he mentioned COVID showed it. We can handle it. And you can go to a winery and have a picnic area, but these guys can't have a little kids play area. Yeah, that doesn't seem fair. Right. Some of this stuff really needs to be reviewed and changed. I also think it does depend on the style like there would have to be some some rules about this, right? Like you can't just have some unsupervised play area at a brewery and then, you know, people have a whole bunch to drink and then they pile the kids in the car and drive home. Like I I, I can see that you would have to have well, yeah. some rules I around mean, this, Scott. I mean, like sure. you can't go crazy. But uh, nobody I mean, we already have those rules. Like you can't go you can't take your kids to a restaurant and have a whole bunch of drinks and then pile them in a car and drive home and you know Well no well that's true. I mean you can do that actually. You can go nobody's monitoring your drinks. If you're ordering food, nobody's monitoring your drinks. Right. And these guys serve food and I, I just feel like you know, people are good and are going to take responsibility for themselves. You know, like, let's give them the benefit of the doubt here. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see if people agree with you. I think that's really interesting. So we'll see. Douche, do we need to loosen up in that way? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com or scott at cknw.com. Let us know. And we'll be talking more about it. Thanks for that, Scott. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about democracy here in Canada. I know we oh we think it's changing and we feel like, oh, it isn't what it used to be. But you know what? Democracy is something that changes over time. And it's almost like it breathes, right? It expands, it contracts. Like it's a living entity that we have to nurture to keep it healthy. That's something we're going to talk about actually with our next guest. Phil Payne is the winner of the 2023 Dalton Camp Award. Going to tell us all about it this morning, talking about democracy. Phil, thanks for joining us. Hi. Now, tell me about your your like thoughts on this, because this is something that you spent a lot of time kind of writing about and thinking about. Yes, definitely. Uh, uh the uh, most of the writing I've done has been uh, about the theory of democracy and the history of democracy. Okay, so what do you think about democracy in Canada today? Well, uh, we're, I think, rather privileged because, uh, as I think most people acknowledge, in the last five or six years, uh, democracy has been in deficit in places there where it used to be strong. Uh, and there are movements around the globe against democratic ideas and promoting extremely authoritarian ideas. And this came as a great surprise to many democratic theorists who thought that with the great upheavals of the period 1988 to 1993, uh, when so many dictatorships fell, that the issue was kind of settled. Right. And, I remember uh, that, actually. I remember that yeah. we thought, oh, we're turning a new page here. But, Phil, when we look yeah. at history, wouldn't history indicate to us that this is also part of the cycle, right? It, it becomes under threat, we respond. It comes under threat, we respond. Yeah. And uh, whenever there is a democratic deficit in the world, there is, or portions of the world, where it holds firm, 
And uh, in this case, it's pretty obvious that the places where democracy has held the firmest under these challenges are Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the Nordic countries. Uh, And all of these countries have some striking similarities. And one of them is their history of public education, which is the point I made in the essay that I wrote. Um, I wrote the essay very hastily. Uh, A friend saw something about the prize and wrote me, uh, or, you know, quickly emailed me, uh, saying that they thought I might have a chance at this prize. And I was kind of dubious. Uh, I asked when, when it was due, what the deadline was, and they said, <laughs> There's uh, always a great afternoon. first, yeah, I was going to say, great first question to ask. How quickly do I have to do this, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and they said, tomorrow afternoon. And I said, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> better on get on that. Put on a co- uh, pot of coffee. And essentially, I, I built it around a conversation I had had several years before with an old friend. Uh, while we were hiking on Mount Assiniboine. So there is a BC connection. To all of this. Uh, okay, but Phil, yeah. and I, the idea of democracy, you talk about education, and I'm curious, though, I want to get back to that, because what yeah. lots of countries have public education, but what is the difference yeah. in countries like Canada and Australia that you think helps prop up democracy? Well, in the, uh, in the case of uh, Scandinavia, in the 19th century, uh, a man appeared named NFS Grundtvig in Denmark, and he began a program of reforming education, and he created what were called the, uh, the folk high schools, which was uh, had elements of what we would now consider progressive education, but his main aim was to get education to everybody. So he organized his schools so that peasants, uh, and at that time, Scandinavia was the poorest part of Europe, uh, that peasants could, uh, uh, could go to school and it would not interrupt the agricultural work season. And these schools proliferated across Denmark and Norway and eventually Sweden, Finland and Iceland, and they raised the literacy in the Nordic countries very, very rapidly and very effectively. And they set the groundwork for uh, democracy in these countries because they were, they were very, you know, they were decayed old monarchies at the time. What what I love about this, Phil, it also teaches us is that we, these are things that we have to work on, right? We should not take this Mm -hmm. for granted, but listen, I got to thank you for your time this morning and congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's Phil Payne, the 2023 Dalton Camp Award winner. Why? Because he writes about democracy. He's an academic and a writer. And his thoughts on this, that it takes work, that it takes education in order to make people appreciate the democracy that they have. You can read more about it in the tai.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, you've probably seen movies about it or watched a TV show, but is it real? Multiple personality disorder seems like a very scary thing, but there's a lot of debate about whether or not it even exists. 
And yet there are doctors who say, hey, they've treated it. Some who say they have even developed new treatments for it. That is the case for our next guest. I had a chance to talk with Dr. Rebecca Lester, who is a medical and psychological anthropologist. We talked all about this issue. I started by asking the question, what is dissociative identity disorder? Dissociative identity disorder is one of the uh, disorders that's listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And it is a condition where somebody has the, the presence of more than one personality or sense of self um, that, that feels so separate that there's not, not an awareness between two or more of those parts. Okay, so it's like what we would think of as multiple personalities. Exactly, yes. It's still pretty controversial, isn't it? It's very controversial, yes. There's a lot of different opinions about whether it even exists, let alone how to treat it if it does exist. Okay, so uh, is there actually treatment for it then, even though it is still, there's still debate about whether or not it actually exists? Like, can you treat something that still has that much controversy behind it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is recognized as an official diagnosis. So that means that the American Psychiatric Association has done a, you know, collected all the research and looked at all of that and decided that, yes, this does qualify as a legitimate diagnosis. And so there are different treatments that people can use um, and do use to try to help people navigate it when they are suffering with it. Okay. And how does it manifest? How can you tell that someone has this? Well, it it can look a little, it can look different in different people. I can speak from the the case that I worked with. Um, For her, it was a situation of um, starting to, to realize that, that, Things were happening in her life that she didn't have any memory of. She would find things moved around in her room. People would come up to her and talk, you know, as if they had had a conversation with, you know, earlier that she had no recollection of. Um, She found handwritten notes around her room that she didn't remember writing. So it can really show up in ways that are very confusing for the person who's dealing with it and, and these kind of very fragmented sense of existence. So when you were treating this patient, could you, could you see it? Did mm-hmm. you see it happen? I did see it happen, yes. It happened in session um, regularly, actually. Not at the beginning. It wasn't until about a year into our therapy together that it started to manifest in session. So I did see it, and it was a very subtle kind of pause that would sometimes happen, and then it was very distinct um, Speech patterns, distinct body postures, certainly distinct content of what she was saying it was very different. She identified it as being a different part of herself in those times. So, so, yes, I could definitely see it. Dr. Lester, like, what do you do once you've established that, that, okay, there might be different personalities in here? How do you, how do you break that to the person? Yes, that's a challenge because, um, you know, she at the time knew something weird was going on, but she didn't fully realize that she was dissociating into a whole other kind of personality. And so when it first happened in session, I tried, first of all, not to respond dramatically in any sort of way. I didn't want to influence what was happening, but it was very clear because in this case, she dissociated into this. She was talking in a very different kind of style and a different tone of voice. And I eventually asked her how old she was. And she said she was seven. But the client who I had came into my office that day was 19. So obviously oh. something was, was going on. So she, she, yes, exactly. So she, you know, was talking in the seven-year-old part for a while. 
then became quiet again and then picked up the conversation in her regular voice as if there had been no interval. Like started talking about what we had talked about before as if there were no break in the conversation. Okay. And so I, I would imagine that's, she, that's very fragile, right? Because if you like, if you don't want to yes. cause further trauma to the person by telling them, listen, there's something going on here. That's exactly right. It's a very delicate situation. And, you know, I was also aware of all the controversy around the diagnosis and like how, um, you know, therapists can potentially influence the way that somebody is presenting distress or what that looks like. So I, I wanted to be very, very careful about how I approached it. And so what I did is, um, well, she noticed that I was looking a little confused. <laughs> so she asked me, you know, why do you look confused? And um, I said, do you remember what we were just talking about? And she said, yeah, we were talking about such and such, which was what her 19-year-old self had been talking about. And I said, you don't remember this other part of the conversation that we just had? And she said, no, what are you talking about? And so I, I just told her kind of what had transpired and what she said when I asked her how old she was. Um, you know, I wasn't putting a label on it or anything. I was just kind of reflecting back to her what, what had happened. And um, she got really scared. It was very distressing for her. She got very upset and scared and kind of ran out of the room, which I understand. I think I probably would, too, if somebody told me that. Oh, no kidding. So I understand, like, you're treating this a little bit differently than what has been done in the past. Like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, the, historically, the way that people have approached DID, which is the acronym for it, um, is to really focus on integration of the different parts of self back into one core sense of self, right? That's usually the way that it goes as far as the treatment. Um, my approach, and you know, there are others out there who take similar approaches as well, is a, is a different kind of perspective on it that kind of coalescing all those parts into just one self doesn't necessarily have to be the goal, that there are other ways that people can live their lives and have full, productive, and functional lives that don't require, um, you know, collapsing everything into oneself. And so that comes a lot from my anthropological background where you know, I study cultures all around the world and I'm interested in these issues of self and identity. And there's lots of ways around the world that humans think about what the self is. And ours is just one. There's lots of different models that have much more room for accommodating a sense of multiplicity than ours does. Right. So do you think this could become like, kind of a, yeah, what you're doing, is that going to become more of the norm or you hope it's going to become more of the norm in treatment? Well, you know, I think it's very individual. I think each person is different. So, you know, I don't know how appropriate it would be for any particular person out there. And I think that's something people obviously have to work out with their own, you know, clinicians and mental health professionals. But I will say for the, the client I worked with, because she was very clear that she did not want integration. Like from the get-go, she was like, this is, I don't want that. And a lot of people say that, but I think given my background, I was a little more open to like, okay, well, let's see how we can work with this in a different way. So it worked for her. And I suspect that there are other people that that kind of approach could, could really help. But again, it's a very individual sort of situation. Right. Oh, so fascinating. Dr. Lester, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So interesting, right? That's Dr. Rebecca Lester, medical and psychological anthropologist, talking about what we call multiple personality disorder. There is a lot of debate about this in the mental health industry, for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. 
know, there are too many stories, and really even one is too many, of children being abused in the foster care system in this province. And it follows a predictable pattern, right? Story comes out, outrage follows, and then nothing seems to change because the pattern just gets repeated. The latest story involves the abuse of two foster children in the Fraser Valley. One child was killed. The foster parents have now been sentenced to years in prison as a result. But why does this keep happening? Every few years, there's another case like this one. And despite all the talk, it just seems to happen again. BC's representative for children and youth, Jennifer Charlesworth, joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. Now, you're now taking a look at at this particular case. Is that right? That's correct. We're undertaking an investigation, which is I'm authorized to do under my legislation and my statutory powers. And what kind of process will that take? There's multiple steps in a process like this. Uh, First and foremost, we'll be connecting with family and community uh, that have been impacted, the nations that have been impacted. And then the the workers, the uh, people who knew the family, the knew the children. And then what we'll be doing is gathering information through multiple sources, through documents, through interviews, uh, and also at the same time, and I think this is important to what your introduction was saying, we've got to look at this child's situation, these children's situation, but in the context of what's going on in the system that we need to be mindful of. How does the system create the conditions in which children are not seen or children are placed in, uh, in environments that are not healthy for them? And this is where I, I wonder how it is that you are able to continue doing your job, right? Because you you deal with these kinds of stories and don't, don't you feel sometimes like you just see this far too often? Yes. Um, Well, there's a few things that I have been doing this work for 46 years. And uh, fortunately, I can count on the one hand the number of situations that I have had either direct or indirect contact with that are as egregious as this. So the antidote for many of the things we see in our office, the critical injuries and deaths we see, is when children do thrive, when they are given the supports that they need. And that's what keeps me going is to try and keep a system accountable for helping our children be the very best they can be and for them to thrive and for the families to thrive as well. So I am motivated by the change and I've seen change in the system over my 46 years. We're very different than what we used to, but I have to say the system is under incredible stress right now. And Sadly, we see situations like this, and unfortunately, we are seeing situations that um, are raising alarm bells for me around caregiver mistreatment. Like what? What are you seeing? We're seeing situations in which, um, and, and let me back up, the number of children in care now as compared to a decade ago is significantly less, which is a good thing. Children are being uh, better supported within families. What that does mean, though, is that children that are in care have very complex needs in many cases. And so what we need is a higher level of expertise, understanding, compassion, and skill and support in order to support those kids well. And what I worry about is that we're asking people who are ill-equipped to do this work to take on an incredible amount of challenge. And I feel, I worry that we are not providing the supports that are necessary in the, and the, the care and support and the skill building that's necessary and the expertise that's necessary to support these kids. And so we do see in our data um, an increase in the mistreatment that children are experiencing when they're in staffed homes or group homes, as they're often known, or in foster care. Having said that, there are 
hundreds and hundreds of excellent, um, skilled foster caregivers. Uh, so I think it's important that we situate this and say, what's going on here? How does it tell us a bigger picture? But also we have to acknowledge and hold up all those people that are working so hard and that are probably just as devastated by this this uh, story as, as, as I am and as our team is. Right. Okay. So a couple points there. One, you said there are fewer children in care, which is, you know, a good thing. In this case, we heard through the court case, though, that the child hadn't been visited in seven months. If there's fewer children in care, then how come these kids aren't getting the care they deserve? That's going to be one of the key questions in the investigation. You're absolutely right that the policy in the ministry is that a child should be visited every 90 days or more frequently if there are vulnerabilities or extraordinary circumstances. So seven months is far too long, and a child should always be seen, you know, eye to eye, not just mitigated through an adult. Uh, It's very important for the social workers to build the relationship with the, the children themselves and be able to assess them over time. So that's an important question for us to ask. What happened that gave rise to a child not being seen for seven months? Is it as well, like you put out recommendations, you put out these reports, and then it's up to the government to implement that. So how responsive has the government been when you've tried to raise some of these issues? Well, it's been mixed, I'll I'll admit. And we released a report uh, several months ago called Advocating for Change, which was taking a look at um, recommendations that we've made in the last five years in my term. And um, it was a mixed review, for sure. There were a number of areas that I'm very disappointed that uh, government has not acted upon. And my hope is that with this particular situation, the government has indicated in advance that they will receive and accept my recommendations. Um, And um, I'm going to hold them to that statement as we go forward, because there's there are a lot of children who are vulnerable in this province, and it's inexcusable to me if we, that we aren't, as a as a government, as a state, as a community, supporting them to be uh, to be able to thrive. Are we getting better at at overall in terms of the system? You said like, okay, there's fewer children in care. Do we believe like those kids are getting better care though, for the most part? I think the whole, well, here's the challenge, and the social care system is not unlike the health care system or other systems. There's a tremendous amount of stress right now, the labor shortage for sure. Also, the rising costs, we are losing a lot of foster caregivers because of the housing costs and costs of living, et cetera. Despite the fact that government has increased rates, it's still, it's a big undertaking, it's a big ask. So I do see the system under stress, and uh, when a system is under stress, when there are shortages of of staff to do the work, then we do see situations in which policy isn't followed or some of the basic uh, quality of care considerations are not met. So I I, I think the system has um, changed in many good ways. Um, one thing that is important for us to be taking a look at is that nations uh, resuming jurisdiction over their children. But again, they have to be well supported um, in that transition with good funding. So for in this investigation, we'll be looking at this little person's experience and what happened to them. But we'll also be taking a look at the, the bigger context. What's going on and is the system going in the right direction? All good questions. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing this report. 
Thank you very much, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Jennifer Charlesworth. That's BC's representative for children and youth. Now, they had to wait for the criminal proceedings to be done before they could launch an investigation into this. So that is what is now happening. And we also, of course, wanted to talk to the minister in charge here, the Minister of Children and Family Development, Mitzi Dean. There have been calls for her resignation or her firing uh, because of this case here and would clear and obvious failures in the ministry. Uh, the First Nations Leadership Council told us about you know their calls on that yesterday. Uh, we put in that request, not available for us to talk to, but you know what? We're going to keep asking. We're going to keep asking because it is important for these questions to get answered. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you heard of something called BC's Rental Protection Fund? This is a $500 million fund. It's huge. Backed by the BC government, it is officially launched. It's supposed to help uh, First Nations nonprofit groups purchase some older, you know, quote unquote, affordable rental buildings to try to preserve them as low cost rental housing. These are all great ideas, but how is this going to work? Well, now that it's launched, we can try to find out. There is a CEO now of the Rental Protection Fund. That is Katie Maslechko, who joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. Great to be here. This sounds like something big to get up and running. So where is the Rental Protection Fund at right now? Absolutely. We're excited to have been able to launch it this week. Um, And what we've opened is, uh, well, certainly a great deal of information that I know everyone has been excited to hear and and can be found on on our website. But most importantly, we've opened uh, the first stage of applications so that nonprofits can um, start to begin that process of preparing themselves and preparing their applications to seek that funding. Okay, um, let's start. So, yeah, let's start from the beginning on this. What is the Rental Protection Fund? Absolutely. So we're here. Um, we're a five hundred million dollar uh, fund that was initiated by the government back in January, um, and provides capital contributions to these nonprofit housing providers with the goal of helping them purchase existing, currently occupied uh, rental buildings and helping to provide housing stability for those that are living there already and retain that affordability for those tenants in the building over time. Okay, could this be then any building that is right now considered affordable if a nonprofit forms or decides to come in and they could buy that building? Generally, yes, uh, we are. Um, we have certain criteria that the buildings need to meet, much like uh, the criteria that these nonprofit housing operators need to meet as well. Um, but that that is the beauty of it, and it is available across the province as well. Okay, so how does it work then? How do you qualify for this? Sure. So with this stage one that we've just opened, um, that's really pre-qualifying the nonprofit because of course we want to ensure that they've got some background and experience operating housing um, and that there's an alignment with their mission there and we also want to be able to make sure that they're able to move with the market when they do find that right property and so getting them through that pre-qualification uh, gives them that uh, increased level of, of confidence and certainty to proceed um, with the process of, of making an acquisition. And so that's what they can start to uh, explore for themselves now at this point in time and then be prepared to bring those uh, properties forward when they find the right one. Right. Okay. so then, Katie, is this designed for situations that we hear about, like dem evictions, right, where these older buildings get torn down to make way for big, shiny new ones? There's certainly an element of the program that is focused on retention and renewal um, because the most affordable housing we do have is the housing that we've already got. Um, But some of it is 
older and uh, is in need of a little bit of uh, repair to ensure that it's sustainable and livable to operate um, and to extend its viable life uh, for these operators and the tenants that are living there. And so that is certainly part of um, the the gap that the fund will fill to make sure that that is all uh, not only possible, but viable. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that then, because not every building uh, is going to qualify for this. That's correct. And so um, we have started to lay out those criteria so that uh, uh, nonprofits can start to wrap their heads around what those might be. And really, this is also an applicant-led process. So while we have our criteria that these buildings must meet, um, so do the operators and finding the right uh, balance for themselves as well. And, And that's that's a mutual process, certainly. Right. Okay. So what are some of the criteria you think the most important ones that people need to know about? Sure. With regards to the properties or with regards to the... Um, the, pro- the Let's start with operators. the properties. Let's start with the properties. Sure. So more of that will be coming um, over the next few months because there's a great deal of this that is very contextual to where uh, any of these acquisitions may be made. It is, of course, across the province. Um, but it's important to know that these are acquisition of buildings and not individual units or, or sections of buildings. Um, these are for self-contained units as well. And um, it is for existing properties and not new development, which is certainly um, a bit of a shift uh, for all of us in terms of how we're used to talking about um, increasing affordable housing supply. Um, and of course, most importantly, it must be at risk of significant uh, rent increase or redevelopment so that we can help in and uh, prevent that through the investment from the fund. Right. Okay. And so it's not just one unit. It has to be the whole building. Correct. Yes. And of course, um, we want to be able to ensure that these operators, um, there's some efficiency to that. So um, it may be co- you know located near an existing property of theirs or just makes um you know, strategic sense in the growth of their organization. Okay. And I guess the tricky part here as well, Katie, is if this is an older building that was at risk of, you know, being bought and torn down, that doesn't mean though that the updates, the repairs, the condition can't be maintained. Like some of those things, you're still going to have to spend money on those things. Absolutely. And, and that's why retention and, and renewal is, is certainly a part of this um, because these, these require some investment um, in order to keep them uh, that way. But even with, you know, our ability to help support the nonprofits in, in filling that gap, it's still vastly cheaper um, and certainly much faster these days than uh, new, new supply, which we also need to be focused on and, and continuing to build new supply. Um, but in the meantime, it's a fairly high impact way of being able to retain the supply we've already got and make sure that um, either displacement or disinvestment, to your point, um, doesn't become the reason that we lose those units uh, as well. Right. Okay. And you don't want this process to be too cumbersome, right, to make it really difficult for people. So can you give us an idea of what the what the process is like? Absolutely. That's a big part of why we have this stage, staged process. Um, and we are opening that up for nonprofits to be able to apply for that stage one right now so that they can have that confidence to proceed forward into stage two and three um, once they have a property in mind. So if they successfully pre-qualify in this first stage, they'll be able to come through um, at stage two, just a quick check-in to ensure that the property they're exploring um, does meet the property criteria of the fund. 
And then from there, they'll advance into their underwriting conversations with um, their lender and any other partners they may want or hope to bring to the table. And then they'll bring forward to the fund a comprehensive acquisition proposal. And at that time, we will bring it forward to our investment advisory committee and to myself, who will evaluate it in terms of a whole variety of, of criteria, including, you know, the amount of, of funding they are hoping to fill and the overall positive impact on the supply of affordable housing. Okay. So Katie, where can people get more information about this? I would definitely encourage everyone to visit our our website, which has now officially launched and that's rentalprotectionfund.ca. There is a lot of information there about the process, about the fund itself, and also how to start uh, getting in touch with us or engaging with the fund. Um, If you have questions about it, if you're looking to initiate an application, lots of detail in there to help folks navigate um, this new and exciting uh, opportunity. Well, thanks so much for telling us about it today. Glad to be here and, and thanks for uh, thanks for sharing the story. That's Katie Maslechko, who's the CEO of the Rental Protection Fund.